Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This is Amanda Hirsch from the Not Skinny But Not Fat podcast. You might know me from Not Skinny But Not Fat on Instagram, where I spend my time talking about reality TV, celebrities, everything happening, and pop culture every Tuesday, okay? I also talk to some of our favorite celebs and reality TV stars. We talk about what's going on. Tune in every Tuesday and just feel like you're talking with your best friends in your living room. Welcome back to another episode of the Career Contessa podcast, your shortcut to being more fulfilled, healthy, and successful at work. I'm your host, Lauren McGoodwin, and today I'm joined by social psychologist and author, Tessa West. Tessa is a leading expert on interpersonal interactions, including the interactions between toxic coworkers and toxic bosses. We'll discuss the different types of jerks, the behavior that drives them, and how you can get them off your back once and for all. And now this is the Career Contessa podcast. From open floor plans and Zoom calls to Slack channels, the workplace has changed a lot over the years. But there's one thing that never changes. You'll always encounter jerks and toxic coworkers, unfortunately. That's why I'm excited to welcome social psychologist Tessa West. And she's also the recent author of Jerks at Work, which I'll make sure to link to in the show notes, to come shed some light on this topic and how we can get these people to leave us alone. Tessa, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. So can we just ship all these people to uh, a deserted island and be done with them or what? (laughs) Yeah, and we definitely can. And we're we're never the jerks at work, right? So we're never going to be on that island. It's just everybody else around us. (laughs) Of course, of course. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So tell us a little bit about your background. And I'm just curious, did you work with a bunch of jerks and that's inspired you to kind of study this and and then write about it? (laughs) That's a great question. So I'm a social psychologist by training. I study the science of awkward social interactions. And I kind (laughs) of like no end of that. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of fell into this by mistake. So I started doing research when I was an undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara, studying what makes people feel uncomfortable when they interact with another person. So everything from delivering tough feedback that someone might not want to negotiating with another person, to asking for things like raises at work when you feel really uncomfortable comfortable confronting people when they're engaging in difficult behavior. 
So I study these things. I study people's bodies, their physiology, their stress responses, often how their bodies don't correspond to how they appear on the outside. So kind of the more you smile, the more you laugh, often kind of the more uncomfortable you're actually feeling, more anxious you feel. And I just found this to be really fascinating. So I've been doing this for about 20 years or so, but I have had a lot of jobs. So I've been working (laughs) since I was about 16. I worked in retail. You know, I had some pretty competitive work environments, even things that don't seem super high stakes, like selling men's shoes that turned out to be just really critical life lessons. And I think my turning point for this book was actually when I was in a position of leadership and I found myself becoming the jerk at work. And it was a, a little bit of a lesson in humility of sort of how did that happen to someone who should know better and should know these techniques. So I sat down and thought it would be fun to write a book about it. So everyone can benefit from all the mistakes I've made through the years. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will. And I just want you to know at Claire Contessa, two of the most popular topics, bad bosses, yeah, bad bosses and toxic coworkers. Like yep. <laughs> without a doubt. And then to hear some of the feedback from people is wild to me. So I know they exist. I'm very fortunate. I love my coworkers and they're not toxic at all, but I've also worked in workplaces where some of the things you're mentioning or the types of bad bosses you're talking about. And you're like, Oh gosh, there's a name for that. Like, and it, <laughs> Yeah. So jerks at work is definitely the book. No one wants to have, but it's certainly very relevant as I, I, I can tell on our end. So can we talk about, you cover a lot in your book, but I want to talk about what are the seven classic, you know, workplace bullies or toxic coworkers that you're most likely to meet and their hallmark characteristics. Because I found that when you kind of put labels to it, it really helped me also identify, am I the jerk or do I work with a jerk? And I think that's really helpful. Yeah. So the first four types I'm going to talk about are coworkers and the last three are bosses. So the first one I talk about is kind of my favorite type of jerk at work, at least to write about. And that's the kiss up, kick downer. So that's the person who is kind of awful to everyone who works alongside them or sometimes underneath them, but they do when the boss isn't around and they have some secret talents that the boss loves. And so, you know, it's just very hard to, to beat these people, to complain about them. You often come across as a whiner, as competitive, as petty, because they do bring something to the team or to the organization and your boss really values what they have. Uh, The next is the credit stealer. So this person can just really kill your spirit at work. They, tend to be your friends. They tend to be the people you trust to develop ideas with, sometimes even your bosses. And then what they do is they come in, they either steal credit for your ideas or hard work, often just by kind of rephrasing or taking your seat of an idea and growing it a little bit, and then just throwing you under the bus when it comes time to actually give credit to somebody for whatever you know, that, that wonderful thing is. And people just really harbor a lot of resentment for these folks. Yeah, for sure. Carry it with them forever. The third is the bulldozer. So we all got used to this person during the pandemic. They would take over our Zoom screens. You know, I got very bad at just kind of minimizing and muting these folks. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, <laughs> bad habit. It doesn't solve the problem, at least in the long term. It feels good at the moment. Yeah. So they talk a lot. They dominate. They tend to have no inner monologue. They think out, outside. They go on you know, and on when they, they talk. They go on and on and on. Yeah. And, you know, kind of instead of coming up with the idea in their mind. But the kind of more pernicious side is they're often powerful people that are well-connected. And so if they don't like the outcome that a group is making, what they'll do is they'll climb the ladder behind your back and really question the process by which you got there. They'll tell people it didn't seem fair. No one had a chance to speak up. We voted, but no one knew what they were voting on. These kinds of things to really question the outcome. 
And then that way, groups are just ending in an impasse. They're never able to kind of make decisions, kind of get mm-hmm. past this bulldozer. And the next is the free rider. So this person has all the charm in the world. We love having them around. They have the best gossip. They can get dinner reservations. They're fun on teams, but they get away with smile and charm alone. And they know how to take advantage of very conscientious teams who will pick up the slack. And they yeah. often go undetected because bosses assume the well-functioning teams don't need to be babysat. The free riders will just kind of find these teams, take advantage of them, and then reap all the benefits of working alongside these great people. The next three are the bosses, so the micromanager. This is actually the most common form of management strategy. You take a whole bunch of conscientious go-getters, you give them no training on how to do this job of managing. So what do they do? They they manage you in their old job. Lots of control, lots of panicking. They do it to everyone, regardless of who kind of needs the help and who doesn't. And for everything, no matter how important it is and how much they could just let it slide, you know, and this is an exhausting person to work with because the harder you work, the less you do, you know, you're going up the mountain, down the mountain, kind of back and forth. Yeah. It's like Sisyphean exercise. And then the next one is the neglectful boss. So they're kind of on the opposite side of that continuum. They tend to have very poor time management skills. A lot of them are putting out a lot of fire. Some of them are actually also micromanagers. They disappear. You have no idea what's going on. They panic. They show up at the 11th hour. They exert a lot of top-down control to feel like they're in control. Then they leave again and you have no idea when they're going to show back up. So they create a lot of uncertainty and anxiety for people at work. Very difficult to deal with these folks. And then the last one is the gaslighter. This is probably the most clinical person I talk about. You know, they tend to deceive with the intent of creating an alternative reality for people. And they do this by social isolation. They cut you off from people. Sometimes they tell you that you're kind of worthless at work, that you should keep your head down so that no one notices you. You won't get fired. They're the only ones keeping you here. But sometimes they do the opposite and they flatter you and tell you you're part of something special that no one else can know about. Usually they're getting you to do their dirty work for them. And so gaslighting is a means to an end. But the red flag for them is the social isolation. They're they're trying to encourage you to not talk to other leaders, to not um, hang out with anyone else at work, just them. So Mm -hmm. those are the seven types. Oh man, if you're listening to this and you're like, I work with that person, my boss is that person, (laughs) then you are not crazy. I mean, that's another thing is a lot of people start to wonder you know, is it me? Am I part of the problem? Or do I just keep picking the wrong workplaces? Like this is such a, I mean, you're a psychologist, so you get this, but it's like, it really is messes with your head because you do start to think that you're the one doing something wrong. And if you have a micromanager, it's because you're not good at your job, for example. And so let's talk a little bit about just identifying what category your jerk or your toxic coworker falls into and determining what drives their behavior. Because I think this is important to understand that their behavior is more about them than it is you. So what is driving the behavior of say, you know, the gaslighter, let's do the bosses. Let's start with them first. Yeah. I think what's important. And I try to hit on this theme a lot of my book is that you know, jerks at work aren't born. They're often kind of made. They might have this kind of key ingredients to be a micromanager. Maybe they're a little anxious, they're conscientious, you know, they're people pleasers, but you put them in an environment that really allows them to grow. And that's really what creates them. So you take someone who is getting like very little top-down guidance from their own manager or little control over how to do things. Maybe they work in a place with too many reporting layers. So there's a manager, an assistant manager, an assistant to the assistant manager. They run out of things to do. So mm-hmm. they micromanage. 
And a lot of these people, we don't think about this, but they're annoying to everybody else too. They're not just annoying to us, but they're annoying to their boss and they're annoying, annoying to the other leaders in the organization. So what I've actually found is a lot of these folks are doing these things, not because of you, but because other people are kind of encouraging them to engage in these behaviors, or at the very least, they're not preventing them from happening. Kind of one of the most tragic cases of the micromanager I've seen was someone who was very annoying to her boss. And so her boss would send her on fool's errands that often involved micromanaging you to do like useless work, like committees that nobody cared about, just to get her off his back. Because she oh, wow. also kind of micromanaged up a little bit. That anxiety wasn't just pushed down on you. It was it was pushed up to her boss. And to, to deal with that, he would just give her kind of BS work to do that the, the employees were then kind of stuck doing. So, I mean, there's a lot of these external reasons why people micromanage. And on top of that, no one gets any leadership training at work, not any real training. Yeah, no. <laughs> we, we had, no, it's true. We had a woman come on earlier this year and talk about how to build better bosses. And that was her whole premise was like, there's no leadership training and there needs to be leadership training. And it's like, my hope is with this podcast, if we say this enough, maybe people will actually listen and start offering that. I'm curious too, with the jerks at work and toxic coworkers, um, you know, is it possible to overcome that? I mean, is it possible to deal with them? So what are some tips and strategies and I loved your example. Like any more examples and stories, like let's hear them because I, I do feel like a lot of people throw in the towel and they start to look at a new place to work. And I find that workplaces, like the grass is not greener. It's just different yeah. grass. And so that's a big thing too, where you're like, is it even possible to have a non-toxic workplace? So figuring out these tips and strategies is going to be helpful no matter what. Yeah. I think our biggest error is that we often wait for things to get really out of control before we say anything. And then the conversations we have to have it have about it are super daunting and they're scary and they're too big picture. I mean, you wouldn't wait until you knew your spouse was cheating on you for two years before like bringing up any issues. And I think the same is true at work. I think kind of one thing, people have a fear of having conflict conversations, of, con of confronting. And we have to get over that fear because the best thing that you can do is learn how to have a healthy conflict conversation at work. And I think there is a science to it. You, If you have a conflict with someone and that person's behaving in ways that maybe they're not entirely aware of, so I'm not talking about gaslighters, they know what they're doing, or even kiss up kick downers who are intentional, they're kind of more accidental things that people do. You can go with them and kind of open the conversation with something that their behavior is affecting, like getting you aligned on your goals with this person, or figuring out kind of better time management. So instead of accusing them of, of smothering you, you would talk about, how, you know, I feel like my goals and your goals aren't aligned. How can we get there? Or you can kind of open with something that you would like to see them do more of. So we kind of rarely confront people with, I really like it when you do X. I wish you would actually do more of that. And it's hard to think of silver lining with jerks at work, but most of them do have a skill or two that's actually, you know, something that we enjoy. Micromanagers, they're on your back all the time, but at least they're giving you feedback. So you could kind of highlight that. Then when you actually bring up the behavior, don't talk about how you feel about it. Don't talk about why they do it, their intentions, but just mention the very specifics of the behavior itself. You know, you don't give me enough time to turn around emails. Five hours isn't enough to do X, Y, Z. You know, you line item edited this document four times, like very specific things. You don't want the person to, to be able to deny or argue with you about and I found that if you do these things, you kind of lead with, with something you want them to do more of, you focus on the behavior, their defenses go down, and then you're more likely to be honest and less anxious about it and less defensive in return. 
So you don't get into this pattern of defensiveness and stonewalling where you just kind of cross your arms, grin and bear it and storm out of the room. You do this over and over again. And then at the end of these conversations, you ask for feedback. You say, okay, so I give you some feedback. Can you give me some feedback? It feels much more interpersonal and dyadic and less like you're just there to criticize them. And then I recommend that people do this early and often with all different kinds of relationships at work. So it just becomes culturally normative to have these small conversations that don't feel like huge state of the union conflict conversations that we're just giving very specific feedback about very specific things before it gets out of control. And then keep in mind, lastly, that almost nobody tells anyone that they're behaving like a jerk at work. Even in exit interviews, we lie. We just say it's compensation. It's almost never compensation. And because of that, people aren't learning that what they're doing isn't useful because no one's actually comfortable telling them in a way yeah, no one has that goes down do it. Mm-hmm. or energy or it's just like it's not worth it's like I'm, out, I'm going out the door. Why? Yeah. Why am I going to risk doing this now? And then I don't know what if that person works at my next company, you know, that yeah, or like social networks are how we get jobs mm-hmm. and we don't want to screw up a reference. And so you know, you can't do the scorched earth approach. So you have to kind of take a step back and say, how can we do this with like kind of more bite-sized approach to conflict? And I think learning how to do that early is really critical because you can take that skill with you to your next job. You can teach it to people if you manage, you can do it up, you can do it down, you can do it parallel. I think it just works. It's a very generalizable strategy. So for a boss listening to this, what's one thing you would tell them? Should they set up, start setting up one-on-ones every week so that people feel like they're being given an opportunity to give that feedback often? I mean, what, what's like one, let's do one action item for coworkers and one action item for bosses. Yeah, that's a great question. I think bosses need to have frequent short contact with all of their team members and never outsource communication to someone. So even if it's just someone that's two levels beneath you, You don't want to hand over communication to someone in between. You want to do it. These meetings can be short. They can be five minutes. Length does not equal better interaction. And when you have them, ask very specific questions of employees. So don't say, how are things going? How are you doing? Are you having any issues? You would say things like, did you do all the work you agreed to do at the beginning of the week? Did you do any work that you didn't agree to do to say fish out someone like a free rider? So that way the employee isn't telling on someone, but they are kind of telling you if they're taking the burden that another person's kind of laying on them. So you have to ask very pointed questions to kind of fish out different types of difficult people. And then at the end of that conversation, ask them, how am I doing with my, with our communication? Is there anything you'd like to see me do more of or less of? You know, that those conversations can take five minutes. And I think if you just do them once a week, that's much better than say two hour meetings once a month. Yeah, for sure. I also know... I, as a boss, I managed someone who was a very toxic coworker or a person on the team. And my biggest regret is that I didn't, I didn't seek out or figure out who, like who was the toxic one? Like you were just saying in that example, like you can ask employees questions and then you're able to seek out like, oh, maybe that person is the free rider. And so I think also as bosses, one thing I've learned in my experience is like, you know, we call we used to call them like culture vampires. Like one person can suck the life out of your culture and your team and the yeah. energy and the motivation. And so like if you're a boss, it's also a huge incentive for you to be doing these meetings, not just to get the feedback, but also to know who is that person who's causing the problems, who are the jerks, who are the toxic coworkers, because they can take a whole situation down. Oh, absolutely. And I think as a boss, what we see is this kind of top-down poisonous structure team. Yeah. And we don't know 
we don't know sort of who's the one with a virus that's spreading it to everyone. Yeah. And there's certain kinds of jerks at work, like kiss up, kick downers that will make your life hell if you tell on them, so to speak. And, yeah. you know, and telling on them comes with a cost because bosses get very defensive. They like this person. So you have to be kind of be aware of those dynamics when you ask these questions and also aware that, that employees don't like to tell on each other. You know, um, this idea not that to like, their boss, stitches, but to each to other, boss, yeah, to each other, but stitches get snitches, and you know, they don't yeah. like kind of being that one. And there's certain cultures that really are very punitive to people that tell on you to the boss. And I think that's why you have to ask these very specific questions and fish out who that potential person could be very early because you're right. Once it's out of control, then everyone kind of becomes the jerk, and you don't actually, you've lost control over who's actually the cause. Of this, yeah, of this. absolutely. What do you think about so with virtual teams? You know, we've got Slack channels. We've got all these ways to. Yeah. You know, it used to be at work there would might be a click and they would gossip or do something, but they usually did it in the kitchen or somewhere where you kind of knew they were yeah. doing it. Now I feel like it could be happening a lot on you know whatever your online virtual communication tool is. Has that helped the toxic workplace? No. It's okay. made it worse. <laughs> I am like very anti chat functions, Slack channel. I think that what it creates is parallel communication where there's just different realities between different employees. So I worked with an organization where they're having some issues at the top. They came, they, you know, gave their speech or whatever. Everyone was kind of pissed off about it. It was COVID related rules. And there are 50 Slack channels going on within 24 hours. They had to shut down Slack because it had just completely created this negative environment. I think Slack's a little bit dangerous. It creates clicks at work. It also is a great place for gossip to spread and misinformation to spread. And I think the best thing that we can do is reduce multiple communication channels happening at once. I mean, I was actually on the receiving end of this at work where I did something in a meeting that a couple people didn't like, but I didn't even know it because they were having a private chat about it that had gotten out of control and I was completely unaware of it, but they didn't know I wasn't looking at the chat and so on and so forth. So I think the more we can just all be present in one stream of communication, the better. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of going back and doing this stuff in person if you can, but just reducing all of these lines of communication that some people are privy to, others aren't. There's a huge spotlight effect where people think everyone knows what they're thinking, but that's not necessarily the case. It's just yeah. reads miscommunication. Yeah. And to your point, the miscommunication or misinformation, right? Like if you've ever, <laughs> I remember one time someone left their chat up and I saw something about myself and I was like, that's not even true. Like, yeah. you know, and again, we all probably, I mean, I'm by, have a bias to say that probably about myself too, but so it sounds to me like a huge piece of this is making sure there are open lines of communication so that you can solve these problems quickly and with as little stress as possible. And as you kind of noted, like the whole reason why you got into this work is to study awkward situations. And this stuff brings anxiety. It brings awkwardness because essentially you feel like you're confronting someone. So we need to somehow normalize confrontation to not be this like dirty word. And like, you know, the image you have in your head is this very intimidating, scary person, just like yelling and screaming. Right. Yeah. And I think the reality is some people are like that. They are really scary. They are yelling and screaming and that's just the reality. And I think the more you do this, the more you're going to see some signal in the noise. So if you try one approach on five people and it works four out of five times, that's a good sign that it's working. But yes, every once in a while, you're going to get someone who responds super defensively, but you have to practice it widely across your social network. And I would say like, on top of that, we need to get better about developing relationships with people at work who aren't our best friends and learning how to find allies, you know, these kind of central nodes and social networks at work. 
that can connect us to other people who maybe have been victimized or know a little bit more about the situation. Or if we don't know how to talk to our boss, find the person who's been working with your boss for 20 years. See if you can get some advice for that person. But we, we don't like going outside of our networks because it's uncomfortable and it feels weird. And we like our three friends at work and we like to keep it that way. But I actually don't think that's the best strategy for dealing with a lot of these kind of difficult people at work. Mm-hmm. And how do you identify if you're the difficult person at work? <laughs> well, first off, no one will probably tell you. I think um, I have a quiz in my book, Are You a Jerk at Work? And it doesn't go into the seven archetypes, but it kind of goes into four categories of you know, conniving trickster and, you know, these kinds of things. I think probably half the time your behavior that's jerkish is accidental. And I think it's, it's very tough for you to know this until you learn to identify your own triggers of what you look like in your worst case, you know, version of yourself. So I think you need to have an honest conversation with yourself. What do I look like when I'm sleep deprived, when I'm not getting any resources at work, when I'm stressed out, when I'm anxious, whatever it is, what are your tendencies? So for some of us, that anxiety, that discomfort leads us to micromanage. It gives a sense of control. Some of us become neglectful. We free ride. You know, you need to know what your kind of own tendencies are so that you can replace those behaviors with something else when, you, when those emotions kick in. You often can't control those emotions kicking in. Those are often kind of circumstantial, environmental, but you can control what you can do about it. And I think I found myself kind of realizing when I was writing this book that I was neglectful because I would start to see signs. Like my students would email me and say, can we meet? I don't care if it's midnight. I just, it's urgent. I need to get some of your time. And that to me was a red flag that I'd been ignoring them. So you need to learn to be a little bit of a detective, see those red flags and how other people treat you, but don't expect them to be super clear with you. You're neglectful, you are micromanaging, but you can kind of look, you know, when you walk by the office, I was a micromanager once and I could see my student turn her light off. (laughs) <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, as soon as I came by and I'm like, okay, she doesn't want to see me. I must be, I must be too much right now. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. I, I know for me, when I get anxious, I turn into a micromanager. I start asking a lot of questions. And so maybe it's this weird mix of like neglectful slash micromanager, because it's sort of like, I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm cool. And now all of a sudden I'm anxious. And now I have a lot of questions because I'm trying to like get caught up or calm my own anxiety. So now that I'm like hearing you say this, I'm like, yeah, I, I actually can identify with that. Yeah. And I don't, I truly don't think of myself as a micromanager, but I definitely, when I'm anxious, I ask a lot. I, all of a sudden I go into like information yeah. gather until you to your point. Sometimes it is accidental, which is why I think the, the comment about communicate often is really, really great because if it is accidental, you can clear the air and move on pretty quickly. Right. Yeah. And I think it also helps people. I I mean, I'm going to throw myself under the bus. So I I talk about these types, like the neglectful boss, the micromanager, but in social science, it actually is, is better to not identify yourself as a type, but focus more on the behavior. So what you just said, I tend to micromanage when I'm anxious. Is it helpful to label yourself a micromanager? Probably not. That's super threatening. It's scary. It's probably not even accurate, but it's okay to say when I feel this way, I micromanage, I neglect, I free ride. And that way it's, it feels less personal. And we, we know from social science that removing negative labels and just calling it a behavior instead of a person is really critical to kind of getting over that hump to addressing your own shortcomings, to kind of embracing that. And I also think it's kind of nice you combine that with a little bit of a growth mindset. You're not stuck as that person forever, right? right? right. That's not who you are. That's not your essence. That's what you do when you feel like crap, <laughs> you know, which is very different. 
Yeah, I like that. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tessa, this has been incredibly insightful. Your new book is called Jerks at Work, Toxic Workers and What to Do About Them. Highly recommend everyone getting a copy of this book, especially if you listen to this podcast, because that means that you are probably interested in this topic. Um, because I know that a lot of people at career, I mean, I had someone today ask me, cause we talked about something about toxic workplaces and she was like, is it even possible to not have a toxic workplace? And you know, that kind of breaks my heart a little bit because for a lot of people, there's just such an acceptance of like yeah. work makes you miserable. People at work make you miserable, but it doesn't have to be like that. Right. It doesn't have to be like that. I mean, and also just realize that it's an up and down thing. There's going to be moments where people are more toxic and moments when they're less toxic and teams that you're on that are more and teams that are less. But I certainly echo your point that hopping from job to job is not a good idea because you don't actually learn the strategies you need. And I'm very like fearful that if we have a whole group of people doing this, they're going to make lateral moves for six years and they're never going to grow up. Right. And so that kind of decision is going to harm people in the long run. And I think, of course, there's some environments that are so toxic, you, you need to kind of just cut your losses. But most of the time, it's learning these strategies and, and having bosses and managers who are willing to teach them and model them to other people to kind of create that culture change. Yeah. I like to say you take yourself wherever you go. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like it, if you don't learn these strategies at one place, you're going to run into them and you're going to need to learn them there. And so hopping around just sort of is like moving the finish line around, but it, it doesn't yeah. actually get you anywhere. Tessa, where can people stay in touch with you, learn more about your work, follow your work, all, all the things? So if you go to my website, tessawestauthor.com, um, it will give you links to all of my media, all of my social accounts. The quizzes are there, ally quiz, jerk quiz. You can get immediate feedback on kind of where you fall in these different categories and information on where to buy the book as well. Amazing. We'll put um, links to the book and your website in the show notes and maybe the quiz too, because I, I feel like that will be <laughs> really fun. And I'm using air quiz <laughs> because I know that's not really what people consider fun, but I do think it'll be very enlightening. Thank you, Tessa. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Career Contessa podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. Your reviews help our show so much, or you can just rate our show. We'll even take that because it really helps. If you want to learn more about Tessa West and her book, Jerks at Work, check out our show notes. Lastly, we have a workplace toxicity quiz that's free and can tell you just how toxic your workplace really is. Link in the show notes to download that and get started for free today.